for me in New York, I pursued investment banking, private equity, tech and VC as a career. And then uh, at the same time, I always wanted to express myself creatively and went to modeling and acting. And the more that I grow in these spaces, the more that I realize that it's it's intuitive or it's innate to my personality because it keeps me interested, it keeps me challenged, and I do see a place in both of those uh, spaces that I could fill. Whether it's being the Latina in the room, being outspoken, being the one that is challenging the status quo, uh, everything needs to be pushed forward. It has not been easy to, you know, uh, dance between these two, and there's both of these industries, especially in finance and fashion are cutthroat and they're tense and they are demanding, um, but that's what I need in my life. You're listening to Moneda Moves, a podcast where we cover the intersection of money and cultura. I'm your host, Leon Alfaro, a Latina award-winning journalist, producer, and strategist. On this podcast, I will highlight stories illustrating Latinx relationships with money, our contributions, and role in the American economy. Here, we'll increase transparency around the netto issues and achievements of our community, as well as that of our POC peers, to inspire you to pursue your own financial poder. We cover stories with our community's front and center, alongside the netto experts, entrepreneurs, and innovators. No te lo quieres perder. Hello, Moneda Moves listeners, and welcome to a new season of the podcast where we serve you stories about money and cultura from First Builders. I'm your host, Leanne, and for the next few episodes, we will be talking with multi-hyphenates of the business world. Whether they're part-time models and VCs, a journalist-turned-Web3 company founder, or a community builder working for Paris Hilton and Fidelity simultaneously, the superpower shared here is that these leaders in their respective spaces transit different worlds, and with that comes rich lessons in money. Today, we're going to speak with Cheryl Campos, dubbed the multi-hyphenate queen, in an article we wrote for Hispanic Executive, having transited investment banking, modeling, community building, and venture capital. It's some of these many skills that led her to build La Familia, an ecosystem built just two years ago for Latino founders and venture capitalists to come together. Today, it supports more than 300 venture capitalists through their careers from breaking into venture to creating their own funds, and it's backed by the likes of SVB, Comcast, Samsung Next, Techstars, and so many more. I met Cheryl when we were early in pursuing our careers in New York City, and from one first-gen kid to another, have so enjoyed seeing her grow throughout the years, and most recently was head of growth and partnerships at Republic, the investment platform helping everyday people get access to private markets. Recently, we spoke with her straight from Stanford Graduate School of Business, where she's making boss moves and getting an MBA. We talk about breaking into VC, the importance of community, and the future of her career. Here's Cheryl. Let's talk about where you're at. You are getting pursuing your MBA at the one and only Stanford, this, you know, first generation New York born Peruvian. And so want to say like, I, there is like cierto, cierto orgullo que I feel, you know, being able to interview you and being able to talk to you about your experience. But I think there's a lot of us that are wondering about the MBA experience, especially at a place like Stanford. So to those not exposed to that world, can you describe your experience to us thus far? I was 
lucky and fortunate enough to get accepted here, which is known to be in the belly of the beast, right? Silicon Valley, tech and entrepreneurship colliding and creating businesses that will be in the next Fortune 500. So I have seen that firsthand, the amount of serendipity that comes with bringing good people together here, the amount of resources that they offer to you in order to start your own thing, and even just explore all the ideas you have is second to none. And then also the network that you get from the faculty in particular, the staff, everyone is trying to help you and they're opening doors that you didn't even know exist. And so, I mean, as a Latina, like what, 4% of Latinas get a master's and like we need more representation here because I do feel like in California, at Stanford, uh, there needs to be more diversity and people with different perspectives that are trying to solve problems for our own communities. And so I just see so much potential here for that to happen. And I'm really blessed to be here. And I'd like to see more of us uh, representando. Claro que sí. And we really are looking forward to hearing more about your experience, seeing more of what you will accomplish at such an incredible institution. In this article that I wrote about you last year for Hispanic Executive, we talked about how you're a multi-hyphenate. I mean, you've transited so many different worlds. You've worked as a model, an actress, have transited banking and venture capital. Uh, so talk to us about the philosophy between transiting so many different spaces and how you think of yourself as a, as a professional and as a person. I have never wanted to be kept in a, in a box, right? Never wanted to just be one thing. I wanted to be many things in my life growing up. I always used to say I wanted to be first lady president and a ballerina <laughs> at the same time, you know, like it, it may be hard, but we can do it. And so I have been fortunate enough to have the support of my mom and my brother, uh, just an incredible family that always thinks, this, you know, the sky isn't even the limit space is, you know, like we're constantly striving for more. Um, and my mom who brought us up by herself as a single mother in New York, like, always knew that we could attain what was what seemed unattainable, right? My brother and I both went to Harvard. My brother's now a, a surgeon at Harvard again. And it's funny because now my mom is like, you, I guess you can just do what you want and I'll support you. And I think that in itself is progressive and, and has been the biggest blessing. And so for me in New York, I pursued investment banking, private equity, tech and VC as a career. And then uh, at the same time, I always wanted to express myself creatively and went to modeling and acting. And the more that I grow in these spaces, the more that I realize that it's, it's intuitive or it's innate to my personality because it keeps me interested. It keeps me challenged. And I do see a place in both of those uh, spaces that I could fill whether it's being the Latina in the room, being outspoken, being the one that is challenging the status quo, uh, everything needs to be pushed forward. And so I, it has not been easy to you know uh, dance between these two. And there's both of these industries, especially in finance and fashion are cutthroat and they're tense and they are demanding. Um, but that's what I need in my life. And I think uh, taking a step back and heading to Stanford uh, was a good opportunity to really see, okay, if 
these two areas are what I like. How can I breathe, take in the landscape, and then make the most appropriate decisions to get to where I want to go in a way that's smart. So like, you know, working smart, not hard and leveraging all the connections and the uh, experiences that I've gotten over the years to make sure that I get there. Right. I want to be the Latina Issa Rae at some mm-hmm. point. I want to be, uh, you know, the, um, the like a, the first Latina that, uh, is at the helm of a bulge bracket, right? I want to do so many things in my life. And so it's really about choosing these paths and figuring out what's most um, most important to me at the time. And so when you look at all of the different things that you've done over life and all of the different careers that you've pursued, what is your kind of driving purpose, your mantra, some people may call it, or yeah, just your why? It's interesting because if you had asked me a year ago, it would have changed a little bit. But I think the overall purpose is to reach my full potential and then utilize my network and access to help others that come after me. I think it's about making the table bigger. It's about expanding our possibilities and really fulfilling our potential, not just for ourselves, but as a community. And so I think with everything that I've touched through Republic and through Visi Familia and now La Familia, uh, I think that has been resonating and in, when, in tough times that's exactly what gets me through. It's about making that change and seeing uh, things better, left better than than when I first got there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that can apply to so many different industries. So I can see you branching out even further. Yeah. So let's, let's go all the way to the start of your career. As you, as you mentioned back in New York, you started in investment banking and you shared with me that you dove into venture capital because you could then access diverse founders and support them at the earliest stages. Can you get more specific about the kind of work that you did at Republic that allowed you to reach this goal? Uh, just for context, Republic is like the Robin Hood for private investing, right? It allows for everyday folks, accredited and non-accredited, to invest in startups that could be the next Airbnb, Netflix, and those that are mold our lives. So I went in, quite frankly, asking for a job. I was ruthless and just like, hey, it seems like you're doing incredible work. You're supporting diverse founders, especially because when you open up this access to capital, more diverse founders will get funded. And so please give me a job. And therefore, I actually started off in sales uh, where I was cold emailing founders and I used all my data resources. I broke Gmail at some point, but I was just reaching out to <laughs> as many people as I could. And my calendar was completely booked from nine to seven, I think. Just speaking with right? founders all day. Speaking with founders all day. I think in total, I've, I've talked to like about 800 founders or something like that, but it's been, it's, it was uh, a journey for sure. And that's, if anything, little by little, we were able to, um, become known in the industry, those talks, you know, turned to something else. Then I started speaking and I started reaching more founders. And so when I became head of uh, venture growth and partnerships, after that sales role, um, the world was my oyster because so many diverse founders knew who I was, knew that I was putting the work, 
they would refer us to other diverse founders and then um, I would be able to see them raise on the platform and be successful in their goals, right? They were raising anywhere from 1 million to 5 million. They were uh, really bringing in their communities to back them so that, you know, if they do exit that the community can then benefit. And that made it all the difference, right? It was even helping them in, during times of struggle, like COVID, for example, where Silicon Valley had shut down, they needed excess capital. And by raising, they were able to potentially, um, and I saw this actually a couple of times, they were able to uh, turn away predatory term sheets and they were able to not make mistakes that would have cost them later in their in their journeys. And so if I think that was just incredibly rewarding and it's by being intentional of reaching out to diverse founders and just founders in general, because this founder life is, as you know, <laughs> a grind. And so the more supporters that we have in our corner, the better. When working with these like earliest stages companies, what are some of the biggest issues that you see them come up against? Founders need the right team, the right product market fit, and the right timing, quite frankly, to become successful. Uh, if they don't have the right timing, they need the right amount of capital to survive to make sure that they make it to the right timing, similar to like the Netflix story, right? Mm-hmm. But I think 30 to 40% of breakups, and correct me, correct the stat if I'm wrong, but they happen because of founder breakups. So like, it's really all about getting the right team, making sure you're just as passionate in creating what you're building, and then making sure there's real demand and not diluting yourself that there is, and then turn as you continue to grow, it, it doesn't. So um, I saw that time and time again with founders, uh, seeing kind of the writing on the wall or seeing that like this wasn't working but like trying to will it to life and that's I think been been really uh, been really insightful is seeing the types of founders that had extra chances to do that versus I think a lot of diverse founders just don't even have the capital or the resources or even the bandwidth to to pursue something like that because mm-hmm. they just don't get extra chances and I think that's part of the structural problem right is we do need them to try and fail and try again and fail again and fail better, right? Uh, and um, once again, I'm grateful to even be at Stanford because that's what exactly what Stanford tells you to do. It's like fail, fail miserably, but get up and do it again. Like just everyone's out here trying, so you better do your best and and, and move forward. And it, it encourages you to do that. And so we just don't get that luxury as much as, as Everest founders, but um, but it's still about making sure that you're you have those things aligned, your team, your your product market fit, and the right timing. Yeah, that's really useful to know because also, again, you said once we start talking about structural issues, that's a whole other set of issues too. But like that's like when we're talking about the company directly, and I'll check out that stat because I don't think I'd heard it before, 30, 40% of breakups happen through founder breakups. I definitely yeah. have known people who have gone through that, and it's just mm-hmm. you're so personally intertwined with the company. I can only imagine how difficult that is. Yeah. Um, Going back to talking about VC, this is a super popular field, has become even more popular in the last few years, yet mm-hmm. Latino investors represent 2% of the people in the industry. What do you think were some of the qualities and some of the things that you did that have made you successful in VC? Uh, so I, in some ways, I'm known as a VC, but 
I will truly only know if I'm successful as a VC once I have my exits, right? I've invested in mm. more than 20 companies. I will see if, uh, you know, I've made the right bets. But in the meantime, people know that I have put in the work to really be an ally, especially to diverse founders, and to make sure that we're opening doors and giving them opportunities that otherwise they wouldn't have known of. So I think VCs in particular need to do several things. They need to source great startups. They need to be there at the right time. They need to support the portfolio companies that they've already invested in. Uh, and they, they, if they are looking to build a fund, they actually need to know how to fundraise. So I'd say it really becomes like a lot of it is sales. A lot of it is grinding. And I think Latinos, we innately have a drive and the charisma and, yep. the, and the ganas, you know, to make this happen. And so I think Latinos in particular would be incredibly successful in VC. It's just that we don't get the network and the opportunities to even get a start in it. Right. VC is all network driven and it has a few spots. And usually that goes to your networks. If it, and if they're not differentiated, then it, it is what it is. Right. And so that. It's unfortunate that that's the attitude, but that's what, you know, we're trying to solve with La Familia um, and a couple of the other things that, that are in, yeah. in play. which I definitely want to talk to you about. But before jumping over, I kind of also want to talk to you about Twitter because VC <gasps> Twitter is huge. And and honestly, like, I feel like it's so timely. I know I didn't put this on the question sheet, but I would be remiss <laughs> if I did not ask about Twitter because it has been such a place, such a, like, important place for VCs to build their thought leadership resumes, but I also have seen interesting posts in particular from you about how some folks hire ghost writers. So, I so yeah. I, I, I'd like, <laughs> girl, I, I just want to explore this because I know so many people are trying to get into VC and I know people of color trying to get into VC. And so let's break this down into a couple segments. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about how you leverage Twitter in your time to grow as a thought leader first. Mm-hmm. So I have never used a ghostwriter, just putting it out there. <laughs> um, I think Clear the count. <laughs> right, exactly. Like that's Twitter for me, and it used to be because I think you Twitter has really changed a lot and I can talk about that, but Twitter for me used to be the town hall where all the VCs used to go. They used to talk about um, important issues or just brag about themselves or, you know, it was, it was a hodgepodge of things, but you could kind of glean where either how market, how people felt about the market, how they felt about founders. And if you saw a perspective that was needed, you just go and say it. And there was no one telling you not to do it. You just kind of inserted your opinion. And the more that you did that in a thoughtful way, the more that I think people would resonate and follow you and actually support you in your growth, right? I was consistently talking about, um, you know, supporting founders and uh, sharing resources, talking about the struggles of diverse founders, talking about the struggles of diverse investors. And that became a resonating theme, plus sharing sometimes my personal uh, mm-hmm. trials and tribulations or successes, you know, uh, as I did modeling. And I, st- and I started becoming more active in sharing that part of my life because it took a long time to really um, felt that I really feel that the VC community would embrace that side of me. And they did. So that was uh, something that I, I had to get over. And 
that's I think the beauty of Twitter is you don't need a ghostwriter. What you really need are thoughts and thoughts that make sense, thoughts that uh, are different from others, that you're not just regurgitating what everyone else says, because a lot of people do that. And they mm-hmm. do it in a thread and they get a lot of follows and that's fine. But I think the best way for you not burn out, for you to feel like actually that Twitter is giving you something back is by really iterating on your own ideas and um, throwing them out there. And if you get feedback, taking that feedback and moving forward. So I like Twitter because it does democratize access to this information and it allows you to also have a voice. New Twitter, though, yeah, let's <laughs> has talk now about become new a bunch Twitter of ads <laughs> and, and all these other things. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really want to, like, touch on, like, you're saying that, the, like, access that existed mm-hmm. on Twitter because I do remember talking to Brittany Chavez, founder of Shop.Nex, and mm-hmm. she was just like, you know, when I was starting the company and I wanted to get I wanted to get investor money, and she's like, it started by getting a pulse on the investors and what better place to do the research one of them was Twitter, where you could reach out directly to investors and get that access. So I guess, talk to me about Twitter today, because I know that Twitter spaces had a hot minute and they continue to have a hot minute in in the Web3 space. But like, are, are VCs still there? If not, where are they going? Great question. Twitter has become a hodgepodge of weird ads viral takes that are usually not good (laughs) and just content that's pushed on you that you might not have subscribed to or even wanted to see which is because they've changed the algorithm on the back end and it apparently does not do a good job of showing you what you need in order to actually stay on the platform there are vcs there still I, because of all the randomness and sometimes triggering content that would be there, actually took a pause from Twitter, which is heartbreaking, right? Because I have so many followers, like I want to continue to support and and be a part of that community, but I just needed it for my own mental and personal health, right? So I came back a little bit more recently, but it just doesn't have the same vibe. And even your the content that you put out doesn't have as much reach anymore. And I've heard mm-hmm. that from many tech Twitter um, uh, folks that, you know, I consider peers and, and are, you know, trying to still thrive there. A lot of people are going to LinkedIn though. <laughs> so if you have LinkedIn has, has really become much more personal, it's become much more content driven, uh, original content driven, uh, it's interesting because it's not the same vibe. It still has that kind of more formal professional type of um, experience, but people are, are trying to break that down slowly but surely and using more emojis or using more personal photos or life moments. And so it's so interesting because LinkedIn hasn't really done anything to encourage it other than just see Twitter fit yeah. miserably in this part. So it is, uh, it's, it's interesting to see what happens. But um, but as of right now, uh, that's where people are going. Yeah, I asked because I felt it. I see I see GPs, I see venture capitalists on on LinkedIn, and I'm just like, you know, what prompted this? Of course, LinkedIn has its creators program, and it's been trying to get people to make LinkedIn be a thing. But it looks like, in lieu of of other platforms being like a good fit, like people are going to LinkedIn. And I think that's a, just a really interesting shift that we'll have to follow. Uh, now you mentioned La Familia. 
And I want to talk to you about your journey with this officially nonprofit. You said that as of this recording, it was recently, just yesterday, uh, made mm-hmm. a nonprofit. So congratulations. Felicidades. Thank I need, feel like you. I need to put like applauso right here. <laughs> like trompetas. Enter, enter. <laughs> like, applauso. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but I, let's talk about the trajectory there because when I first heard about you starting this group uh, with your, your co-founders, it was VC Familia which was the largest community nonprofit venture supporting investors. But as it, mm-hmm. and I also had the pleasure of meeting them when was, I was out for Latitude, uh, run by oh, Lab yes, VC. Yes. Great, great group, great crew. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a ball. Um, but you also six months ago created Founder Familia. So now you have venture capitalists and founders coming together. Um, yeah, just talk to me about growing community in this way. Like how how did... VC Familia come about and where are you today? Yeah. Well, it's been a journey, right? Because we just celebrated our two year anniversary two weeks ago. So the fact that we were surmounting on this journey to close the capital gap for both Latino founders and funders is a lot, quite frankly. It's, it's I think, tackling the problem on both sides of the table. And um, it's not for the faint of heart. So we started this during the pandemic. Uh, in January 2021, because as VCs, we felt isolated in our homes, like we didn't know where other Latino VCs were, and we just wanted to get together and bring an authentic community together. So we also realized that we need to be both inclusive but curated. We needed to be authentically ourselves, and we also needed to be cognizant that even though we're intersectional, right, we're multi-ethnic, multiracial, that we have a lot of shared experiences that we need to celebrate together. And so we did that through events, intersectionality chats, gatecitos, and, you know, we went taco runs, and we did all the things we could during COVID. And now um, transitioning out of that, uh, we started doing in real life events, we had barriadas, we had (laughs) um, happy hours, um, and, and monthly meetups. And then it was so curious because we started seeing the founder community see how close we were getting and started creating their own chapters. So I saw like Latinx Familia somewhere. I saw Familia in Austin and like WhatsApp groups and, and people really trying to create that same sentiment. And so a lot of folks ask us like, why are you like focusing on both sides? Cause that's so much work. Like just one side alone takes so much. But I really did think it was because the community was asking for it. There has not been one community global that has uh, amazing Latina um, venture-backed and or venture-backable companies. And so if the people were asking for it, we should figure out a way together. And so um, Carlos Castellanos, who is also one of the co-founders of VC Familia, um, started identifying who the founders could be to lead Founder Familia because communities are only as impactful as those that are leading it right, that have that same struggle and have the best interests of that community in mind. And so we actually have identified several founders across the U.S. that can help us with events, that can help us build out this community. And yeah, it started six months ago, and it's actually already bigger than VC Familia. So um, VC Familia has about 340 VCs, and Founder Familia has about 350 founders. And that's just 
speaks volumes to how much the founders want to come together. And quite frankly, the big, it's a bigger market, right? There's only, it, so yeah. Many I mean, Latinos are Latinos. among the biggest generators of business. So exactly. in a way, not a surprise, but exciting that they came together and organized with and you so in such a short quickly, amount of time. Exactly. Yeah. And they love the concept and what we stand for, the mission of, of her media. And so we decided to bring these under the umbrella of La Familia Foundation uh, as a whole. And so we have been building out the infrastructure around people, which right people will bring in. We're hiring a head of programming that we'll be announcing soon. Um, and we have a couple of amazing volunteers that just are so experienced, but still want to support us uh, with their time and, and, and knowledge. And so we're just truly blessed. And we have a couple of really great programs coming out um, in Q2, Q3 that will support um, Latinos who are raising their own funds. Latinos who are currently um, trying to like start raising their own funds. And then mm-hmm. on the founder side, we're building out more co-working uh, days and getting them to, you know, co-working that. is a new happy hour. So <laughs> like Renee, um, one of our uh, founder from media board members says all the time, but just encouraging them to continue to build out their businesses, create unicorns and, and thrive in the process. So closing the capital gap on both sides, making sure there's connectivity between both groups, um, and yeah, making sure we have the right people to, to move that forward. And it, I mean, let me just say, like, I think it's, it, it makes a lot of sense that you're building an ecosystem and you're not just talking to one side because part of the issues, when we talk about the issues that Latino founders and entrepreneurs face are, are ecosystem issues, right? So we can't, uh, like talking in a silo is going to get us so far. We want to make mm-hmm. sure that we have those two pieces connected to each other. And the other thing I want to recognize is that community building is probably one of the like most valuable skills of our era, that especially for Latinos and, and BIPOC communities. Uh, community building is going to help us feel not alone in this very challenging process where there is no blueprint. And I do think that Moneda Moves by and large serves an audience that is building a blueprint for the first time. So in, in that vein, what, what were your biggest lessons when it came to building a successful community where people stay engaged? There have been a couple major ones. So one of them is consistency. I think a lot of people want to know when the next event is and know how they can engage, right? And and quite frankly, I've learned it because I have been inconsistent at times, right? I have been busy or I've been uh, focused on other things. And so if you don't tend to your garden, right, if you don't tend to the community, like it will, it, it may die. But I think the other beauty about it is if you have a curated community, they will still help each other out and they will still create these bonds. So even if you don't, if you aren't there full time, people will still keep it going because the second big lesson is making sure everyone coming in knows exactly what you stand for and how to operate in this space, right? I think VC Familia and now Founder Familia, uh, by being part of the familia, you actually have like a stamp of approval, right? You're saying like this person is actually good to do business with and we want to make sure that we we continue to build together, right? Mm-hmm. And so if people know that coming in, then the community will will try to do things that is in service of that. And um, I'd say last thing is uh, taking time for yourself, not burning out and, not, and always reminding yourself of what your North Star is because... Uh, it's um sometimes it's thankless work (laughs) sometimes it's work in the backgrounds that people don't see 
uh, it's like the legal and financial and like right working with IRS to make sure that we're nonprofit after two years, it took a long time. And so those are things that, um, in those moments, making sure you pause and when you feel like you're burning out, taking a step back and, and making sure that your team, uh, knows that that's, that's a real, um, that's a boundary that you need to protect. Uh, and yeah, I mean, Thankfully, my team has been incredible. Uh, we all are, we all do the dirty work and we know we have each other's backs because we just have an incredible work ethic. And as Latinos, we're like always um, making sure we do things at the best possible level. And uh, that has been an absolute joy to see and, and, and know, that, um, know that we're in a safe space and that we can, we can support each other. Yeah, all of that sounds like really great tips for folks as we as we build communities, myself included in there. Cheryl, it has been awesome to talk to you about all of your journey, all of the multifaceted things that you do. We didn't even get a chance to dive in into modeling, but we talk about it in the little in the, a little bit in the article that I wrote for you. And I know I'm mm-hmm. excited to see what movie I'm going to spy spy in next because um, I know I know that you keep that in the background. I always like to end these podcasts with a question about your biggest money learning. So we haven't really touched on personal. And I think uh, there's a, there's probably a lot for you to say personally about your relationship with money. Uh, you'd mentioned uh, to me previously that you had in recent years paid off uh, a house mortgage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like I think like moving to Stanford, that's a whole other money conversation. But what what have been some of the biggest money learnings you've had personally? I think this is more just fresh in my mind because I'm a student and I'm, I'm, I'm back to living that ramen life uh, because an MBA is expensive um, and there's not as many scholarships out there, but there still are. So just FYI, anybody listening should apply. Um, I'd say one is cash is king. Like you really want to save as much money as you can for reserves because you never know when unexpected expenses will come up. And, you know, you might be invited to something that you really want to go to. And you also, there's an opportunity that you need to take that will require you to use some reserves. And so really having a a safety, a safety net to back on, especially as first generation Latinos who usually don't have a safety net, creating your own is absolutely, uh, key um and not being afraid of loans as much because uh i think i mean interest rates are increasing but i was able to take out an interest rate that was you know still three to four percent wasn't that bad and so um i was able to make the most of that so if you're able to get a low interest rate then loans make sense because it's an opportunity cost of capital that you have um, that later on, hopefully you'll earn back, you'll pay back, and then you allow um, yourself to not um, pre- uh, prevent yourself from taking these life experiences that might be completely different. So uh, it might change your life, right? Um, I'm thankfully going to South Korea um, on financial aid in uh, March, right? Uh, I will be trying to learn as much as I can about the culture and soft power and all the like influence that's coming out of Korea. And it's really exciting because then I can apply that to my own life. Right. And that only happens because you, you have some safety net and you have some of these loans that will be able to cover what financial aid can't cover. And so, uh, I think that's really important. And that's a, I mean, 
investing, right? Like that's kind of how you make money. And, you know, whether it's your own house or whether it's through the stock market or through public, right? Private investing uh, over time, but those are longer term investments. Uh, just making sure that you're putting your money in and money that you're, once again, you're willing to lose in case, um, you know, things go south because it is riskier, but in exchange, it also gives you a higher return. And that's the the beauty of investing is um, thinking about it is on the longer term rather than just some short-term gains. Yeah, those are great takeaways, especially for people that are first in their families building wealth that's uh, saving, but just as important as investing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, as it applies to VC, any any big learnings when it comes to money there? <laughs> the amount of money that gets invested in VC is mind boggling. Actually, it's so funny because I was listening to the In Heights soundtrack yesterday um, and they talk about winning the lottery at $96,000. Yes. Like, That's not even a C check sometimes. <laughs> like, <laughs> it is kind of crazy when you see the investments and then when you yeah. see uh, the, the market cap of companies when they go public. It's mm-hmm. just jarring to like take that context and put it in your personal life and you're like, oh. Wow. Yeah. Meanwhile, when I first saw In the Heights, I was like, 96,000. Oh my God. I can't even imagine that much money. And so it's just a completely different ballgame when you're in VC, right? Um, Thankfully, uh, you know, I was Scott for Lightspeed. I'll invest in part of the community fund. And so we write uh, small checks, you know, 50K checks. And, um, but uh, I think it's funny because in this context, it's small, but in your real life, it's huge. So um, I think there's, it's about really seeing it truly as an investment that you're willing to lose and taking big bets and taking even higher risks, right? Venture capital is all about that. Um, and so you can't really apply as much to your own personal life unless you're an angel investor yourself and it's your own money. Um, but that's what you kind of have to get comfortable with because that's the only way that you make these uh, outsized returns. Amazing. Well, muchas gracias. Thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you as always. Where can folks continue to follow you after this pod? Well, you can follow me at Twitter at ModelVC. Uh, I guess LinkedIn, find me there now. LinkedIn, the, the new uh, new Twitter. Just kidding. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, I have to start posting there more. Um, and and yeah, so those are the, the main two avenues. And, and I mean, my website is wellsherylcampos.com. You can contact me there. We'll find you there. Gracias, Cheryl. Talk soon. Thank you, mi gente, for joining us this week on Moneda Moves. Before you go, please make sure to hit follow on this podcast so you can receive new episodes right when they are released. You can follow right now in the app you're using to listen to this podcast. Also, continue keeping cuentas and keeping tabs on our Latinx community and money moves via our free newsletter written by yours truly at monedamoves.substack.com. That's monedamoves.substack.com. I'll see you there. Hasta la próxima.